when he phoned me and I said, how bad is it? He said, one side of Dexter's larynx is 100% paralysed. He said, and the other side is 99% paralysed. And my blood just rang cold because it, I realised we had probably come so close to Dexter having a breathing crisis. And I hadn't realised, I genuinely hadn't thought, even with all the panting, I hadn't realised that it, it was that bad because he didn't have any of the other symptoms ever. Welcome to the Tales of Success podcast, a show about Labradors and achieving training success. Hello, welcome to the Tales of Success podcast with me, Vicky Sharp. Thank you very much for joining me again today. And in this episode, I'm joined by Tabitha Kaplan, who is going to talk to us about a health condition that affects lots of dogs, but it's particularly prevalent in Labradors. Tabitha is going to talk to us about her experience with her Labrador and how she's making it her personal mission to help others in a similar situation by offering education and support to those owners. Tabitha, obviously a huge, massive warm welcome to you, but we always like to start these podcasts off by putting our dogs in centre stage. So tell us a little bit about your four-legged friends. You've got two, haven't you? So tell us their names, their ages, and a little bit about what they're doing right now. So I have Dexter, who is my beloved yellow Labrador. He was a rescue. uh, He was about a year when I adopted him. And he's now coming up to 13 almost. And right now he's sitting beside me on the bed, probably about to bark at me for food. Typical Labrador, totally motivated by what goes into the tummy. So you said you rescued him when he was, um, or rehomed him when he was a year old. Do you know what his story was before he came to you? All I know is he had one owner who dumped him in the council pound with a small scrap of paper that said his then name which was different um and his date of birth and that was it didn't know anything else and was it love at first sight did you just see him and know you had to have him yes he came i went to the rescue to see him and he he ran around the rescue yard then flopped down beside me and put a gentle paw on my knee and it was that was it i took him home that day at that point, you knew you were owned by a Labrador. <laughs> owned by Dexter, and he's been by my side ever since. Brilliant. And you've got another dog as well, Pearl. So tell us a little bit about Pearl. When did you bring Pearl into your life, and where's she from? Pearl is from Romania. She was a street dog who was one of the dogs they brought over to hopefully have a better life here. Um, she, they said she was about nine months when she came here, and I've had her for eight years. Wow. So, she's also a senior dog. They're the best. I've got two senior dogs and um, it makes all that hard work through puppy and adolescent worth it. They are yeah. absolutely incredible in their senior years. They really um, are. Do Dexter and Pearl get on okay or do they tolerate each other? They do get on their partners in crime. Dexter ignored Pearl for the first six weeks because I was only supposed to be fostering her for a week. But then her okay. forever home fell through, which was just as well because she wasn't going anywhere. I was madly attached to her already Dexter ignored her for six weeks wouldn't look at her wouldn't sit with her and then after six weeks I think he realized she was here to stay and they get on extremely well good yeah so he probably realized she's a permanent fixture I may as well get on with her yeah okay brilliant so that's a little bit about the main characters and um for those that are listening to this episode I want to give a bit of a backstory to this episode and, and how it's come about so Last weekend, I was enjoying a nice, lazy Sunday morning, having a bit of a lion, actually. And I was doing what I usually do, scrolling through Facebook, just, you know, looking for anything interesting. And suddenly I saw a post on there that grabbed my attention. That's quite rare. But I started reading this post and I actually couldn't stop reading it. There was lots of stuff in there that made me relate to the content. And actually, that was because some of the things that were in there were were the symptoms that one of my Labradors, elderly Labradors, shows at present. And it made lots of things just tick in my head. And at that point, I wanted to get in touch with Tabitha and kind of offer to help share the story so we could get other Labradors involved and aware of some of these problems. Um, It was Tabitha that wrote the article. And actually, the article is about Dexter, her Labrador. And within minutes, we'd spoken on a message. We then had a phone call. And she's kindly offered to share Dexter's story with us today. So, Tabitha, what made you realise that 
something was not quite right with Dexter. And, and when was that in his life? So he was nine and we were in the middle of a very hot summer and he started lagging behind and panting heavily on walks. But because of the heat, I just assumed he needed shorter walks and more shade. And so that's what I did. And things seemed okay for a few weeks. And then he started waking up in the middle of the night and panting. So I threw open all the windows and brought in a tower fan and nothing helped. And it just seemed very obvious to me something, there was no reason for my dog who's been asleep to suddenly wake up and start panting. And I, that's when I knew some, I didn't know at that stage what it was, but I knew that this was a behavior that was new and something definitely wasn't right at that point. And when you say panting, was it kind of like he'd just done a load of physical exercise? Was it the same kind of behavior, but at times he shouldn't have been panting? Yes. So it was kind of like fast panting as if he'd just gone for a mad run or gone swimming or something like that. But of course, this was in the middle of the night and he'd yeah. just been asleep and that there was absolutely no reason for him to feel the need to pant. The room was freezing cold. I mean, I, I was sitting there kind of going blue because I set up tower fans and the windows were all wide open in a, in a, in a desperate bid to try and remedy this. Um, but yeah, and it was, a, again, a new behaviour. So I knew something had changed at that mm-hmm. point. And, and when you realise that your dog is something's wrong so it could be pain it could be discomfort or something that's causing the panting what do you do with that do you get straight on the phone to the vets do you do what most people do and consult dr google Um, Google. what did you do so i i did immediately google not necessarily expecting to even find anything but it just seemed the quickest thing to do literally within 20 seconds of typing in labrador excessive panting I was faced with pages and pages of links to articles about laryngeal paralysis which of course is the condition we're discussing and I did not like what I was reading yeah so just I I mean we've not mentioned the condition yet because I wanted you to kind of come onto that and laryngeal paralysis is is what we're talking about today otherwise known as LP, because it's probably easier for people to say LP. So during the course of this podcast, you'll probably hear us refer to it as laryngeal paralysis or LP. We'll probably mix it up a bit of both. Um, So you've done your Google search, you've checked for excessive panting in Labradors, and you're hit with laryngeal paralysis. What does it tell you about that? Because I'm guessing, as Google normally does, you get the depressing stuff first, right? I went onto hospital, vet hospital websites. So I just wanted the facts. Um, it's a depressing and tricky condition inherently um, because it's not a condition where a vet can just hand out a pill and then say, okay, see you in six months. So it, it did explain what the condition was. And it said straight away the Labrador is the poster child for this condition. There were lots of other symptoms that thankfully didn't have and never has had. But my gut feeling reading it just because of the excessive panting and his breed and his age, it's a a condition that normally affects dogs in their senior years. And when you put together his breed, his age and the panting, it it makes sense. Yeah. Obviously, I couldn't be sure. So next step was to phone the vet. And um, you said actually that you checked the symptoms on Google, first of all, and there were yes. some, some symptoms that Dexter didn't yeah. have. And I think sometimes we have this tick chart and go, yeah, we've checked that, he's got that, he's got that. But when you're left with things that he doesn't have, yeah. it doesn't mean we should rule that condition out. It just means no. it probably affects dogs in different ways. So what were the conditions that he didn't have? And that's a really key point because there are many dogs who only have one or two of the symptoms And having spoken to now thousands of owners online in this situation, that's why this condition is being underdiagnosed because vets are saying, well, okay, your dog is panting. He's a senior dog. The symptoms that he didn't have, a lot of dogs with this condition will start wheezing when they breathe. They'll be coughing, retching, gagging. Um, They may lose their bark. All the bark may change. It might become hoarse or husky. 
Um, and Dexter did not have any of these symptoms. The only symptom he's ever had has been the panting, mm. which, of course, could be down to many different things. Um, so although he was the, the, the relevant age and breed, he didn't actually fit the profile in terms of ticking off those symptoms, except that one symptom, which was enough. Yeah, it's enough, I guess, for you to get it clear in your mind that it could well could be, be could yeah. well be LP. So you've you've almost made this self-diagnosis because you know your dog better than anyone. And that's important to say. We've got to trust our gut a little bit with Absolutely. our dogs because we know them. So do you then take yourself off to the vets and go, can you confirm what I think? Or did you go and say, can you just give my dog a little check over? So I went to the vet that we had been with for nine years, never had a problem with them. They were always lovely. And at first I didn't mention the condition. I just described the panting and the vet listened to Dexter's heart and his lungs. And he said, everything sounds great. And he kind of watched him walk. And he, he said, I don't really think there's anything much wrong. He seems great. I then said, look, rightly or wrongly, I've Googled. I know that this is the breed that gets laryngeal paralysis what do you think and my vet looked me in the eye and stated categorically your dog does not your dog does not have this condition his breathing is too quiet you don't need to worry about it and that was that didn't want to do any more tests didn't want to discuss it I was just politely dismissed and do you think that was because he didn't tick all of those boxes of the symptoms that we just spoke about I think it was twofold. I think it was firstly because he didn't have one of the very typical things for the condition. It's this very raspy, loud breathing all of the time. It's quite distinctive. And because Dexter didn't have that, in the vet's mind, doesn't fit the profile. But I think also there's just an ignorance about this condition. So that even though I was describing another very prevalent symptom, i.e. the excessive panting, he just didn't recognise that and just wasn't interested because he more or less said, look, your dog's nine, these things are going to happen. And that that just wasn't good enough. And I guess if you've been to that same vet for nine years, there's an element of trust there. You clearly trusted them for nine years. Um, So as an owner that takes them to a professional to give them the best care, what, what did you do at that point? Were you just told to go away and keep your dog calm? Were you told to go away and stop looking at Google? How did that make you feel? Uh, the vets, again, I'm repeating verbatim because it's stuck with me all these years. His exact words were, Dexter's getting overexcited and that's why he's panting. To which I replied, when it's 3.30 in the morning and he's just woken up, what is it you think he's doing that he's becoming excited? He's not doing somersaults off the end of my bed. By that point, I'd had enough and I we left and I never went back. Okay. And I left that day, that practice. And you must have left feeling probably like you'd misread your dog a little bit or questioning that you know have I got it wrong so where do you go with that you know do you go home and start doing a bit of head scratching and saying is there something else that's affecting him or did you were you adamant that what you'd seen from your dog was what you thought it was I went home very disappointed and angry because I don't I don't think anybody likes to be dismissed and I couldn't understand why the vet didn't at least want to do further tests. Um, So I went home and read more um, and kept like a diary of Dexter's symptoms. And then a week or two later, he started panting in the day. So now we have the excessive panting, not just at night, but in the day. And at that point, I then registered with another vet. I'm lucky I have several in my local area. This one was even more experienced than the first one, who I should add is a very experienced vet indeed. This second vet has been around for decades and decades. And so my hope was that she would listen to me a bit or at least do further tests. So we went to see her and she looked at Dexter and I kind of got deja vu. She then looked me in the eye, it was I mean, almost funny, but not quite, and said, I really don't think Dexter's got this condition. He's, he's breathing very quietly, isn't he? At which point I just wanted to scream. Mm. However, she was good enough to say, look, there is a reason for this panting, and of course we have to find out what that reason is. So we were further on when we went to see her. She at least was sensible. And she then did 
a chest x-ray and while she did the x-ray and he was sedated she did check his larynx and then came out to see me and said you know what the left side it's not working quite as it should and of course that confirmed my initial fear and I guess at, at that point when you've had that confirmed you've probably got a whole host of different emotions going through your head you're probably distraught to start with that there's something wrong with Dexter but I guess also you're probably a little bit relieved that you you know something's wrong so once you know something's wrong you can start to try your best to fix it was there a sense of relief when she said that you know we've identified something I was very upset Mm. because I've been you know the thing about what the first vet said was that psychologically in a way it was great because he was saying my dog didn't have this condition yeah and I wanted to believe him and now of course it was being confirmed so I was terribly upset terribly anxious for Dexter and very much wanting to know from the vet right you know, what do we do now? What can I give him now? What can you do for him now? And that is the point where I think many owners of dogs with LP then get quite panicky because there isn't a whole lot that primary vets can actually do. And therein lies the problem. Yeah. So um, I think with, with anything, we only really look into it in great detail when it affects us. And if vets don't see that many dogs with LP, they probably don't have a huge amount of experience. Every vet will have different experience, but you got that diagnosis from Fedexter. So you, I imagine, went away and found out everything there was to know about um, LP. So you've got your diagnosis. Where did you go next? What did you do? How did you do your research and find out everything you needed to know about it at that point? I mean, was your vet helpful were they able to guide you or was their knowledge lacking she was more helpful than the previous vet although let's be honest that setting the bar quite low (laughs) um she suggested a medication called uh vitophilin or vitophilin i'm never sure how to pronounce it it's also known as vivitonin which is supposed to i'm not quite sure how it works it's supposed to aid the breathing a bit so she did immediately prescribe that for dexter so i felt as if at least we were starting to try some things that worked for about four or five weeks and then just stopped working and I then did the deep dive into the internet and started visiting forums and chat rooms and yahoo groups and facebook groups and found every group I could possibly find on laryngeal paralysis which was incredibly helpful because there is a wealth of knowledge out there especially in America, where they are a bit further ahead than us, I think, in their approach to this particular condition. Um, And so then I started making lists of medications, remedies, homeopathic uh, remedies, acupuncture. And I just literally made a list of every single thing that anybody had ever used and then went through them to see what could possibly work for my dog. Um, And I started with homeopathy and I that worked for a bit and everything worked for a bit but of course as time went on the vet was not overly interested um and I was having to be very proactive she was never contacting me and saying let's try xyz I was literally sending her emails every few weeks saying can we try this can we try that and as every month went by Dexter's panting attacks were getting worse um And I began to realise that I was going to have to look at surgery, even though I absolutely did not want him to have it, did not want him to have it at all. And and what was that surgery? So I I think probably you're going to tell me about tie back because it's it's known. So for people that know nothing about LP or the surgery involved, talk to us about tie back, what it is, how it's done and um, and how you felt about surgery, because it is not something that we take lightly putting our dogs through any surgery, particularly something in such a delicate area. That's so true. Um, so the condition affects one of the largest nerves in the body, which then affects the larynx and the side, to put it very, very simply, the muscles and the cartilage that support the voice box, the larynx, don't function properly and they become paralysed. So whereas both sides of the larynx should be moving and letting oxygen through, they gradually, gradually freeze. So there's literally no air getting through, hence the name laryngeal paralysis. 
tie back surgery involves a surgeon going into the throat. I think they go in by the side of the neck, at front rather, and they tie back. They literally tie back one side of the larynx just enough so that the dog can breathe. It's literally enabling the oxygen to get through. Um, but I, I was terrified of the idea of this operation because, as you say, I think as humans, the idea of throat surgery, I mean, I can't even swallow pills, literally. So the thought of putting my dog through this, I just used to sit and cry reading about it. I really did. Um, and I, I just didn't want to put him through that even though I was now starting to connect with owners across the world whose dogs had had this surgery, many of whom had gone on and lived many more years. Um, I mean, these were dogs of 11, 12, 13 having this surgery, especially mm -hmm. in America, older dogs were having it. And it was really interesting to read. And, you know, obviously there came a point, because with this condition, what I should perhaps point out is that left unchecked, if it progresses, and it almost always does progress, it is a progressive disease, there is no oxygen getting through and the dog will literally suffocate. And tragically, there are owners who have seen this happen to their dogs before their very eyes. So, so I mean, in, in that sense, doing nothing is, is simply not an option, is it? You know, we have to, got to do something. And all those non-invasive options that you tried, so the acupuncture, the homeopathy and all that kind of stuff were, were limited in, in their results. So where do you kind of reach the point where you say, actually, all we're left with is yeah. surgical intervention? It, it, the reason, again, why it's a tricky condition, it's hard to calibrate it and know how far it's progressed. So, for example, if one side of the larynx is paralysed, the dog can still breathe because the other side is still functioning. How do you know without actually taking them in and having them sedated and, and they're being scoped by a surgeon? You cannot know whether both sides of the larynx are affected. So for the owner, it's this really tricky thing of constantly watching your dog. You don't, the surgeons won't operate too soon, but equally you can't leave it too late. So you watch your dog like a hawk. You're terrified they're going to have a breathing crisis. And, and some dogs have multiple breathing crises. Um, for me, the point came where one night Dexter just looked at me after having a panting attack. And I just saw panic in his eyes. And I had to acknowledge that my fear of the surgery was going to be greater than his. He wasn't scared. I was scared. And that my fear was, was making me take bad decisions for him and so the next day I phoned the vet that we were still with and said look I, I need an urgent referral I think he's actually getting worse okay. and she did straight away refer us to a uh, vet hospital not that far away. And was, was she um, supportive of you wanting surgery or did you feel like um, maybe it was kind of begrudgingly referring? She wasn't begrudging but her again her exact words to me were I don't encourage surgery. It's just something owners are doing so they can feel they're doing something. Mm. That was her exact phrase. Um, and I would like to say to any owner out there, it's rubbish. This surgery is done to enable a dog to breathe. Now, that's not to say it's the right thing for every single dog. But for many dogs, it works and it works brilliantly. And my dog is living proof of that. And one thing I have found here in the UK is many vets are totally against this surgery. They don't come across many success stories. And when they do read up about it, they seem to mainly absorb the problems that can happen. But in the hands of an experienced surgeon who's done over 100 of these and had a good success rate, it's a 45-minute op. Um, yes, it's a delicate op, but it's not a massive op. Does that make sense? Yeah. So... When she said that to me, I got that feeling again of it's time to move on because she is not going to be supporting this journey that I'm now having to take next to her, sadly. I think you're quite rightly said we tend to absorb the negative stuff in, in what we hear. We're very risk averse in this country, aren't we? We're always thinking, oh, yeah. what's the worst that can happen? But you've just described that, you know, Dex was having his, he was struggling to breathe. And you, you, at that point, you realised that you were worried about the future. 
Dexter probably didn't have that same thought about what could happen. He was actually just really struggling to, to breathe and to survive in, in a meaningful way. And I guess at that point, you probably had that realisation that if you do nothing, you know, Dexter's life probably is going to be limited. And that's got to be awful for, for any dog owner. Was that really what kind of made, was it that hammer blow that made you think, right, we've got to do the next stage? I think it was it was just the look in his eyes. And there are lots of owners out there who don't do surgery. I think that should be said as well. And there are some dogs where the condition does progress so slowly, actually they do live out their lives without having a breathing crisis. But I wasn't prepared to take the chance that that would be the case for Dexter even though he still didn't have the other symptoms. He still wasn't wheezing when he was breathing. He still was just panting. But I couldn't ignore the look in his eyes. And that, for me, was that, that was the point at which I knew, well, actually, he sort of made the decision for me in a, in a strange kind of way because I'm listening to him. Um, and also because I was reading of, of many success stories, that was very helpful. If I hadn't... Have, been reading about those I don't know what I would have done um, but fortunately I was in contact with people whose dogs had had the surgery so that was a massive help yeah so Dexter in his own way has told you that it's time and you've got all this information you've got enough information to make an informed choice that we think it's right for Dexter in that situation so you then knock on the office door of your vets and you say right this is what I want to happen were you having to really convince your vet that actually we wanted a referral was she quite happy to do it oh I just Yes, I mean, I think they, I don't know if they have to refer, but I said to her, this is what I want. And I think she was, she was, she did it very quickly. So even though she was against the surgery, in fairness to her, she didn't waste any time. I mean, I think I got a phone call like two days later from the hospital. So I can't fault her on that. Um, but yes, that, that, it, at that point, that was the informed decision that there was yeah. another choice. Good. And where did she refer you to? And, you know, did you find a surgeon that specialises in this or a, another general surgeon that has a keen interest? So what, the only people that I believe do it are soft tissue surgeons. And she referred us to the Royal uh, Veterinary College, Queen Mother Hospital for Small Animals, I think is the full name, which was only 20 minutes from where I live. So we went there, we saw a really lovely, really nice surgeon um, and he assessed Dexter and said absolutely straight away he could hear what well, I could hear. Uh, but obviously he was the surgeon and the expert and he said, look, he said, I think we should bring him in this week and do it. Okay. And he could, could not have been nicer. I asked him very politely, how many tiebacks have you done? Because the one thing I had learned, mainly from my American friends, because they're so much more assertive over there, um, and they had all said to me when we'd spoken online and when we'd phoned each other, they said, look, you have to find someone who's done upwards of 100 of these. And you have to find out what was their success rate in terms of what were the complications? Were there any straight after surgery? At this point, I have to introduce a term called aspiration pneumonia. Aspiration pneumonia is when bits of particles of food or grass get past the larynx and onto the lungs and the lungs become infected. And for any dog with laryngeal paralysis, this is a risk, whether they have surgery or not. However, after surgery, the risk increases somewhat, not dramatically, but it does increase because obviously one side of the larynx has been tied back. So there's more danger of particles getting through. So I wanted to know how many cases of this he'd, he'd seen. He said he had, well, he didn't want to answer. But when I pushed, he said he'd done around 40 tiebacks. That's not a terrible number, but my gut was screaming at me. No. And to be, fair, to be fair, 40 was probably a little bit inflated from what the actual figure was, because he was probably thinking, I've got to make myself sound a bit better. Um, did you, I mean, did you have a, a trust for him in that time you were with yes. him? Yes, I, I think he, I think it probably was 40, because he really was, I couldn't say enough nice things about this particular surgeon. He was really sympathetic, empathetic, lovely with Dexter. There wasn't, unfortunately, there was an added complication, because Dexter also had a lump that had grown very very slowly 
And because I didn't want, until I knew what was wrong with him, I didn't want him to be sedated because if you have laryngeal paralysis, sedation is very risky. This lump had then started growing more quickly. And by the time we then went to see this surgeon, it, was, it literally was the size of a huge watermelon on his flank. So I had to find a surgeon that could also remove that. Was, um, was that lump anything to do with the LP or was that a totally no, different? It was, entirely, entire, it was just bad luck. And okay. it had been biopsied and come back benign, which was why there was no rush to remove it. Um, and this surgeon was very honest and he said he didn't want to do that as well. He just wanted to do the tie back and not try and also remove this huge, huge mass. And so I, I had to, uh, the journey continued and uh, I had to look elsewhere because I couldn't let him go through two separate surgeries. That would have been crazy. And um, in the meantime, while you're kind of going through this, are you still seeing your normal vets as well for checkups and things like that? So I, I changed vets again. Okay. <laughs> After a year with this second vet, I then moved to another very good vet in the area, uh, another very experienced vet. And he just took one look at Dexter and he said, You're, you've got to go to Davies. Davies Veterinary Specialists in Hitchin. Many people will have heard of them. He said, you have to go there. He said, they saved my cat's life and this is where you need to take Dexter. He said, and they will know what to do. And he looked at the mass on Dexter's flank and he said, oh boy, he said, that has to come off. He said, it has to. So off we went to Davies and I managed to get an appointment with the head of the soft tissue unit, who was fabulous, incredibly experienced with this particular condition. He'd done a podcast on laryngeal paralysis and within 10 minutes of meeting him, I said to him, I, I would like you to do the operation. And he was happy to take the mass off of Dexter's flank. He said, absolutely fine. We'll get rid of that as well. And again, I just went with my gut feeling, which was, this is the person to do it. And, and, and so we, we booked Dexter in for, I think, two weeks later. And uh, he was in surgery for about five hours, six hours. Yeah. Um, and then they phoned me and said, oh, sorry, I should add, the surgeon takes the dog in, scopes the larynx. Then they usually phone the owner and say, this is what we found. Are you happy for us to do tie back if it's indicated? When he phoned me and I said, how bad is it? He said, one side of Dexter's larynx is 100% paralysed. He said, and the other side is 99% paralysed. And my blood just ran cold because it, I realised we had probably come so close to Dexter having a breathing crisis. And I hadn't realised, I genuinely hadn't thought, even with all the panting, I hadn't realised that it, it was that bad because he didn't have any of the other symptoms ever. I mean, it, it literally cannot get much worse without, really. without the worst happening. You know, 100% and 99% is... I absolutely was stunned. You'd think I wouldn't have been stunned. But I think in my mind, I kept thinking, well, he, you know, he's not doing the wheezing. He's not passing out. Thank God he's not doing any of these things. We've got time. But it, we didn't have time. I think we got there in the nick of time. Thank goodness. Wow. So the surgery that he had, um, tie back surgery, just run through what they actually do or what they did to Dexter. They enter the throat through the front of the throat. Yeah. And they tie stitch back one side of the larynx. I believe they normally stitch back the left side and they just tie it. But the tricky part of the surgery is they have to stitch it back so that there's enough space left for oxygen to go through, but not too big a space so that the dog then starts inhaling bits of food and grass and dust. Um, and I think that's where the art comes in and meets the science with this surgery which is why, of course, it's so important that the surgeon has done as many of them as possible and perfected it. Um, and we've been extremely fortunate. Touch wood, Dexter has never developed so far aspiration pneumonia, and he had a very good recovery. Um, and and how, did the, how did the lump removal go at the same time? Did, was that successful? So he, did he have two procedures? He had both procedures at the same time, and the news there wasn't great because it then turned out when the surgeon actually took out the whole mass, even though it had been biopsied by my vet, 
and come back as benign, the surgeon said to me when he phoned me that he didn't think it was benign and that it looked to him like a, a soft tissue sarcoma or a soft tissue cancer and that he wasn't able to get clear margins because it had been so large. So there was a lot of stress about that as well. But I, you have to take, obviously, each day as it comes. And all I knew was that he'd come through the op and he was alive. And I, I kind of just focused on that and told myself that the next day I'd start worrying about the cancer. Yeah, one day at a time. And actually, every day is, is a gift when you've heard that exactly. news that, you know, it was so bad. Anything is, is a bonus, really. Absolutely. So he's in for his surgery and usually it's a fairly fairly quick procedure I would say for the tie back but he's actually in there having two procedures what on earth did you do with yourself in that time because I'm if it were me I'd have been sat there just watching my clock and just going come on come on I need a I need a phone call can you remember what that was like for you um I took a friend with a friend very kindly came with to help me navigate the car journey more than anything else because it was about 90 minutes away and I've got no sense of direction and we drove to a, a nearby shopping center with a cafe and I just sat down and as you say I just literally watched the clock um and that was all I could do and every hour on the hour I phoned the vet hospital I must have driven them mad but they're probably used to anxious owners um once I knew that they were actually doing the tie back I felt a bit better because in a not better but at least then I knew I had made the right decision because all along I had this terrible worry of what if he doesn't really need the surgery? Am I putting him through this? But at least then I knew. So that eliminated that bit of stress. Um, and once he was out of surgery, I just burst out crying and just sat and sobbed for about 20 minutes. I went back to the car and just sat and cried. Such a huge relief that, you know, that, that, he can't that, stay, that stage is done. Now we focus on the next bit. And the next bit wouldn't have been straightforward because with every surgery, there's a period of recovery. So how long was it before you got Dexter out of that uh, vet hospital? And, and what did the next few days, weeks, months, or, or even years look like for him? Um, well, often dogs come home from tie back, sometimes even the same day or the next day. Dexter, bless him, does not react well to anaesthetic, which I already knew because he's been stated in the past for x-rays and things. And he decided to stop eating. Um, and so they kept him in from the Thursday morning to the Saturday evening, at which point I told them if they didn't let him out on the Saturday evening, I was moving in there with him because I just was climbing the rooms. I, I absolutely had to get him out of there. Um, obviously, I knew he had to stay in the extra time for his benefit. But by Saturday, I just was desperate to bring him home. Um, the recovery was really smooth. He didn't eat much for the next five days and he just slept a lot I had to disable the doorbell because the key thing is obviously they've had stitches in their throat so you don't want them to bark so I had to keep everything very calm um he couldn't go upstairs for six weeks so I slept downstairs with him uh for almost two months but it, it really wasn't a difficult recovery for Dexter well it didn't seem to be for Dexter he seemed after a week to bounce back and was his usual mischievous self and it was Lovely hearing him breathe easily and quietly. It was the most amazing thing. And, and how long ago was that surgery now? So when, when did he have the procedure? That was not September, just past the September before. So that would have been the September of 2020, wouldn't it? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so we're was, almost kind of two years, yeah. almost, there or thereabouts. Yeah. yeah. Is, is he still, sorry, does he still suffer from LP? Is it something that still is there or is it just that we've kind of made the symptoms a little easier for him oh it's absolutely still there a dog that has this uh, because even after surgery they a dog that has this condition still only has a 50 percent functioning airway because one side of the larynx is functioning the other side is still paralyzed so for example he cannot walk in hot weather i have an aircon unit i have tower fans as i did when he first was diagnosed or even before then and I still have to watch him really carefully to make sure he doesn't overheat I, I would never walk him when it's very warm um I have to make sure he stays calm which is difficult because he's a very excitable dog bless him um but yeah they it is still a risky condition 
But as you say, almost two years on, and when it's not hot, he can do a 45-minute walk, and he still chases pretty girl dogs. So, and he's still his lovely mischievous self. So it was definitely worth it. So, I mean, that, that, although there's still considerations, particularly when it's hot, it's been a total life changer for Dexter. Difficult question, but where do you think Dexter would be? What position would you be in now had he not have had that surgery? Had you not have kind of suggested you wanted that? He wouldn't be here. I mean, he wouldn't be here with me because knowing what I now know from what the surgeon told me, I think we were possibly weeks or even days away from a breathing crisis without me having realised. And when I am online chatting to other owners who are at the beginning of this journey, for want of a better word, um, I try and impress upon them that they shouldn't assume their dog isn't getting worse just because their dog doesn't seem to be getting worse. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I've learned that labs in particular are very stoical and they'll just try and carry on as normal. And a lot of dogs with laryngeal paralysis learn how to mask the breathing problem so that you, as the owner, you don't even realise it's as bad as it is. And one has to somehow find a way of, of seeing past that but again, the only way is to take them to a soft tissue surgeon for them to properly assess. There is no other way of knowing because there are many dogs like Dexter who don't present the classic symptoms. Yeah. And I would say, thank goodness that you trusted your gut and you went with it. Because I think a lot of people, I've, I've had this discussion many times about veterinary practices and it's important to say at this point, vets are amazing. Absolutely, Absolutely. brilliant. Yeah. But sometimes you know your dog better than anyone else. And actually, medically, they might not display the typical symptoms, but you must, must do what you feel is right for your dog. You are their carer, their guardian, their everything. So with the benefit of hindsight, do you think looking back, you would have done anything differently in, in that journey? Or do you have any regrets? I would have done several things differently. The first thing I would have done differently is I wouldn't have let the second vet sedate Dexter for the chest X-ray because what I realised afterwards and what I learned afterwards was that sedation of a dog with a compromised airway is obviously really risky. So I, would, I wouldn't have let her do that. I would have got an immediate referral to a soft tissue surgeon. If, if I was doing all this again now, knowing what I now know, I would have got an immediate referral and let them assess um, and tell me, yes, this is the time for surgery, or no, actually, you know what? Let's look at him again in six months. And I would say to any owner out there, do not, although our vets are all amazing, I'm not in any way criticising vets, when they sedate, the intubation and the extubation, has, that's the right term, has to be done so expertly anyway. When you have a dog with a compromised airway, I would always recommend having it done at a vet hospital, absolutely, every single time. And you, um, I would say you're a specialist in this subject. You, it, it, <laughs> sounds, <laughs> it sounds like you've done so much research and not only, you know, reading medical fact that is there, but you've, you've spoke to people that have experienced it with their dogs and you know what they've gone through at different, different stages. In your opinion, would you say that LP is being underdiagnosed or even misdiagnosed by some, some veterinary professionals? Well, I know from my own experience it's happening. Mm. And I know that I can't be the only owner that's having this. And having spoken to lo lots and lots of other owners across the globe, not just here in the UK, it's definitely happening. I think because it's senior dogs that are being affected mostly. You know, a lot of vets, they see a senior dog who's panting. They often seem to think it's heart problems, which is right. Of course, they do have to rule out other, other issues. But panting seems apparently to be easily dismissed because that's what happened with two different vets um and if your dog is panting and you know there's no reason for them to be panting get them checked out even if they're not the typical breed typical age definitely get them checked out and it might not be this condition but it, it might be something else but panting should never be ignored that's for sure yeah. you also mentioned to me um some time ago as well about LP is mentioned in research as being part of a wider issue. Um, 
So GOLPP. So talk to us a little bit about that. What does uh, what does that stand for? What does that mean? Um, what do yeah. we understand this, from that? So this is geriatric onset laryngeal paralysis polyneuropathy. Or gulp. <laughs> Gulp, yeah, gulp, gulp sounds better. Gulp sounds better, doesn't it? Um, and my understanding is that the long nerve, whose name I now completely forget, in the dog's system that affects the larynx also affects the dog's hind legs. So another symptom that a lot of owners will see is weakness of the back legs. But of course, if you go to a vet and describe that, they're not going to jump to thinking that it could then affect their larynx. They might think hip dysplasia because, again, a lot of labs we know have that. But this wider condition also affects um, the esophagus, which is why a lot of dogs with LP have acid reflux. And many of us battle this day in and day out. So, again, if a dog is gagging and retching and regurgitating food, that almost can be a sign of LP because it can be the reflux that is part of this wider condition. But it's... Again, geriatric, it's, it's older dogs. Sometimes I think dismissed as your dog's just old. Exactly. Um, yeah. Um, we've spoken a bit about some of the um, symptoms of, of LP, some of the things to look out for. But for someone that has only just started hearing about LP from listening to this podcast, give us a quick run through of what those symptoms, the typical symptoms might be for them to look out for. So excessive panting either when your dog has exercised or when they haven't exercised. Heat intolerance. If your dog suddenly can't cope with the heat, it could be because they can't get enough oxygen. Coughing, retching, gagging. Has your dog's bark changed? Has the sound of the bark changed? Has it become husky or hoarse? Have they lost their bark? Have they got weakness in their back legs along with any of those symptoms? Um... All of these symptoms can be laryngeal paralysis. If your dog suddenly starts developing acid reflux, retching, gagging, regurgitating food, can't keep any food down, throwing up white foam, which can be reflux, again, that can be part of this condition. So there's quite a long list of symptoms, but as, as we've said at length, a lot of dogs will only get one or two. So I think we all have to be the experts on our own dogs and if you know that something isn't right you have to advocate for your dog and if necessary change vets yeah. I, think, I think I'd say to people don't be scared to change vets and and that's it you know my next question was going to be what should people do if they notice those symptoms you know I, we should always trust our vets to, that they have way more knowledge than than any of us are ever going to have they've, they've studied this this is their job it's okay to express your opinion at your vets though, right? Would you say that that is something that you would advise people do? I think it's, I think one, I think if one knows that something is wrong, if like me, your dog suddenly starts panting at times when they shouldn't be panting, don't let a vet tell you they're just hot, they're just old, they're just excited. Tell your vet, I want more tests done, or even better, I want to be referred to a specialist. Um, or change vets, find another primary vet who maybe knows more about laryngeal paralysis or is at least open-minded enough to say, well, I'm not sure what this is. Here are some things it could be. Let's start investigating. Um, but again, I, if you think your dog might have LP, I wouldn't let a regular vet sedate them. I would always have that done at a vet hospital. Is LP something that only really affects older dogs or, or has it been known to affect dogs from a, a very young age there are younger dogs that get it um it's it's less it's quite a lot less in my understanding but it does happen i on one of the forums that i've been part of there have been dogs that developed it at six months or a year or even two years so it does happen but it's, it's not as typical it's typically a dog of six or seven and over um, I have one amazing contact in America, a lady whose dog developed laryngeal paralysis and her dog had tie back at the age of 14 and her dog lived to over 16. And I just mentioned that as an inspiration to anyone out there. 
And I think that's it. We've got to look for the good and the bad of all the evidence. Don't just look, don't just focus on the bad things that can happen. Um, Tabitha, there is a million bits of information that we could literally talk on this podcast. Yeah. And we're just going to run out of time. Um, <laughs> but you have a Facebook group, don't you? So yeah. for those people that listen to this and want to know a little bit more or they feel like they want a bit more help, guidance or support, where can they find you and that resource that's going to be helpful to them? So our Facebook group, which is fairly new, is called Laryngeal Paralysis, What Dog Owners Need to Know. And we also have a website, which I'm adding content to at the moment, which has the same name. And that is Laryngeal Paralysis dash What Dog Owners Need to Know. And it's it's going to be hopefully a support group and a resource for owners whose dogs have this horrible condition. Yeah. And I would say anyone listening to this, even if your dog doesn't have it, join that Facebook group. I guarantee you will find useful stuff there and, and support Tabitha with what she's trying to do to get this message out and share some of her content because there's bound to be people that you come across that will have dogs that will eventually suffer from this. Um, one last question for you, which we like to ask everyone. What is the best thing about having a Labrador in your life? <laughs> And you want me to just name one? Are you kidding? Well, do you know what? I'm going to give you, let, you can name up to three. Oh, my dogs are both rescues. Dexter was my first rescue, although I had fostered. He is a typical Labrador. He is kind. He has, I think labs have a sense of humour. I think they're the most gentle dogs out there. I think the Labrador is the best creature on earth. Far superior to humans, that's for sure. But then um, most dogs are. I'm 100% with you there. Labradors are by far the best invention ever. They're the best. Yes. Um, okay, Tabitha, thank you so, so much for sharing your story with us. Um, I really appreciate your time and we do hope that you and Dexter have the best of futures together. Thank you so much. Um, for our listeners, if you've enjoyed listening to this episode, I would really appreciate it if you could just take 30 seconds to leave us a review in your podcast store. If you want to find out more about Tales of Success or the Labrador-specific training that we provide, you'll be able to find us at talesofsuccess.com or find us on socials by searching for at Tales Success. Thanks for joining us. We hope that has been useful to you. But from me, all I want to finish off by saying is be caring, be consistent and be your Labrador's best teacher. I'll catch you on the next episode.